Welcome, readers. Welcome, you summer readers. Adam Andrews here, known fondly as Mr. A to my students across the country and around the world. It's time for a special summer edition of Center for Lit Live, coming to you from beautiful downtown Rice, Washington. That's the cultural hub of the Northwest, for those of you who are not familiar with the patter. And we are gathered together today to discuss the classics of Western literature, one classic in particular, and we're going to do it just for the fun of it since school is not in session. I hope you have read the story and have come with your thinking cap fastened firmly about your head. Time for a great time discussing literature, and I think we should get right to it. So, let's do... Ah, yes indeed. The cheesy theme music for which Center for Lit Live is justly famous. Good to see you guys. Thanks for coming. I hope everyone can hear me okay. I want to announce before we get started today that I am joined by one of the great literary minds of our generation. (laughs) Wow, I got a look just now from the lovely and talented Mrs. A that said something along the lines of, quit doing that. (laughs) My wife and compatriot and moral and intellectual superior in every way, Mrs. A is with us. Hi, Mrs. A. Hi, Mr. A. It's good to see you. It's good to see you. Yeah, I, th- it doesn't really look like it, actually. <laughs> it looks like you might actually be irritated with me. But you know what? We're going to have a great time anyway, <laughs> and I will try and keep the cheese to a minimum. How's that sound? I love it. Good. <laughs> good. I think we both know how that's probably going to go. Yeah. Anyway, we are glad to be with you guys. Thanks for joining us for a free summer session. Our goal today is to have a literary discussion of a book that you have hopefully read and are ready to talk about with us, Robert Louis Stevenson's great classic, Treasure Island. And we are really looking forward to talking about Treasure Island with you. Uh, I want to do a couple of administrative things first so that those of you who are new to an online class and new to the technology that we are using can get your feet under you and figure out where we're going. So let me talk for a few minutes about that, and then we'll do a little quick introduction to having a good literary discussion, and then finally dive right in to the story. But you joined the meeting today using GoToWebinar technology, and if you're here listening to me, it means that you're inside the meeting, so you've done that successfully. Congratulations. I want you to look around your computer screen and notice that on the right-hand side of that screen, there is a little control panel. And if the control panel is really tiny and is just a little tab, I want you to look at the top and find an orange square with a white arrow inside. If that white arrow is pointing to the left, go ahead and click it, and you'll see a control panel slide out from the right-hand edge of the screen. If that arrow is pointing to the right, you can already see the control panel. And that's the place where you're going to participate in our class. There is a place for you to raise your hand by clicking the hand icon. And there's also a place for you to type comments into a chat box. Uh, Those two things are, are the main two ways that you participate in the class. If you click the hand icon, your hand will go up and we will see a hand next to your name in our class list. And we'll know that you want to say something. And when it's your turn, we will call on you and we will unmute you so that you can speak and you'll be able to speak to the entire class. Everyone will be able to hear you and we can have a literary discussion that way. We'll take the hands in order that they come up and try and get to as many comments and questions as we can. 
if we get to the end of the class and you haven't had a chance to say everything you want and your hand is still up, we invite you to leave your hand up and stay on the class after we end, and we would be happy to talk with you about this book for as long as you like. In addition, if you have questions or comments that you don't want to share with the entire class out loud, but would just like to send them to Mrs. A and me, you can type in the chat box. You can type questions or comments as often as you like. Every once in a while, we will read those comments out loud so that the rest of the class can hear them. But we don't promise to get to every single comment in the chat box. We want to give preference to the out loud comments that contribute to a back and forth discussion. So if you really want to be heard, raise your hand and wait in line, and we will let you speak when your turn comes up. If you have any technical problems, um, if the audio sometimes gets a little spotty, you can send me a chat notifying me of that fact. And speaking of that, since we're all on internet connections of various strengths and abilities, sometimes the audio cuts out a little bit, sometimes it gets a little hesitating, and it sometimes me and Mrs. A start to sound like Darth Vader from Star Wars just a little bit. Uh, be patient in those situations because it very often corrects itself and it's a little bit like a bad phone connection every once in a while. So don't worry about that. Uh, that that uh, kind of goes in and out on occasion, as is the case with any internet-based application. So any questions right this minute about the technology, about using GoToWebinar? Okay, looks like everybody is clear on that. That's great. I'm glad that... That was a short part of our class today. I'll tell you who else is glad. That's mm -hmm. Mrs. A. She now was... I want to get to the story. Let's go, Mr. Okay, a. wait a minute. We do have one question from Titus. Titus, your hand is up, and now you are unmuted. Hi, Titus. Welcome. Can you hear me? I think Titus changed his mind as to whether he wanted to talk. Maybe Titus was just put his hand down. kind of checking out the hand. Yeah. Charlotte asks in the chat box, why can't I see you? That's a good question, Charlotte. And the reason is that we are not using video for this class. And we're not using video for any of the students either. This class is audio and screen sharing. You should be able to see my computer screen where it says, welcome, everyone. We'll begin the discussion promptly. And you should be able to hear my voice and Mrs. A's voice, as well as the voices of all the kids who want to make uh, out loud contributions. But we're not using video. And by the way, I should remind you that today's discussion is in the exact same format as our all year long lit classes that begin in the fall when school starts. And we use the same format for those discussions as well. So if you want to join us for... Uh, Junior High Lit, for American Lit, or British Lit, or World Lit, or Understanding Poetry, any of the classes that we offer beginning in the fall, you'll use this very same format. You'll be able to hear us and see our screens, but nobody has to get all dolled up for video. Yeah, I was going to say that way you don't have to feel like you got to dress up and comb your hair to come to class. Exactly right. And neither do I. <laughs> and most importantly, neither does Mrs. A. Okay, good. Let's go ahead and, and jump into the subject of talking about literature together. And since I don't know how much of this you guys have done, since this is kind of a one-time summer session, I want to take five or ten minutes and talk about a Socratic discussion of the kind that we always have here at Center for Lit and of the kind that we'll be having in the upcoming school year. I want to give you a quick introduction to that discussion so that you can know the sort of things we're shooting for when we begin talking today. And I promise, Mrs. A, I'll make this as quick as possible, but I think you'll agree it needs to be reviewed real quick so oh, that absolutely. new students have a Let's chance. Let's do it. Okay, good. What we're going to do is we are going to talk through 
this story chart using Treasure Island as our subject matter. And this story chart is a collection, a kind of a representation of all of the structural pieces that make up every story. And I want you to notice in particular the words that are in boldface and all caps on this story chart. In the upper left-hand part of the story chart, the word setting, characters in the upper right, conflict down at the bottom inside the oval, plot right above that in that blue triangle, and theme in the bubble in the middle. Setting, characters, conflict, plot, and theme. These five elements are present in every story in the world. And we think, and we actually have proven this over the course of many years, that if you can understand how to recognize these five elements in a story that you're reading, you will quickly be able to understand what the story is really all about. And furthermore, you'll be able to recognize those five elements in the next story that you read and see similarities between and across the stories that you read. So we found that asking questions about these five elements is the best way to understand and enjoy a great book. So let's talk about them real quickly. And then we'll jump in and talk about Treasure Island using these ideas. Okay. Before you do, Mr. A, there's a question in the chat box um, as to the nature of the word Socratic. Oh, right. I'm sorry. I used the word Socratic <laughs> without explaining it. Sorry. When we have a Socratic discussion, what we mean is that instead of just Mrs. A and I talking all day long about what Treasure Island means, and you guys just have to listen and take notes and get ready for a test. Boring. What we're going to do instead is ask you questions and listen to your answers. We're going to have a conversation. Everybody's going to be involved in a conversation. It's way more fun. And the word Socratic just means a conversation instead of a lecture. But we think it's way more fun to do. That's what we mean by Socratic. We're going to ask questions. You guys are going to contribute responses and ask questions of your own. But let's look at this story chart real quickly. And let's talk about two of the easy ones on the story chart first. Let's talk about setting and characters. Does anybody know what we mean by setting? What is the setting of a story? Anybody want to raise their hand and, oh boy, lots of hands. Very good. Uh, Dominic, I saw your hand first. Uh, let's see here. Oh, Dominic, in order to participate, you need to enter your audio pin on your phone. And that is pound four, five pound or hashtag four, five hashtag do that on your phone, and then I'll be able to call on you. Elijah, let's try you. What is the setting, Elijah? Mainly where the story takes place. Okay, very good. Where the story takes place. Any other uh, detail that goes with setting? It's where the story takes place, and what else? Do you know? No. That's okay. That You're exactly right. Where the story takes place is a key element of setting. Joseph, can you add to our definition? By the way, Joseph, it looks like you're muted on your side. There you go. Good. Joseph, go ahead. What else is involved in setting? The theme. Oh, the theme of the story. Yes. I, I think if you understand the setting of a story, you will definitely understand the story's theme. No question. We talk about setting as the place where the story happens. There's another thing about setting that's important to understand, too. I wonder if Joshua has an idea. Go ahead, Joshua. Um, the story, I think the setting is like um, where it takes place and when it takes place. Yeah, exactly right. Go ahead. Go ahead. 
Um, um, so it's like when it takes place, like, um, it's stop it. So sorry about that. Um, that's okay. Yeah. Um, it's like when it takes place and where it takes place and like, um, what, um, that, uh, that guy said before, before me, like the, like the kind of theme of the story. Okay, good. Yeah, the atmosphere and the mood of the story also. But you're right. It's where it takes place and when. And in regards to theme, I'd like to talk a little bit about theme in a few minutes and kind of consider that a bit separately. But you're absolutely right in suspecting that the theme gets woven through all of the parts of the story. Yeah, right. Including... The setting. Including the setting. Authors choose their settings very carefully in order to talk about their themes. So that's a really good answer. Let's talk about characters real quickly. What are the characters of a story? That seems like kind of an easy one maybe too, huh? Christopher, what are the characters of a story? Go ahead. Christopher's hand just went down. Let's try somebody else. Uh, Tim, what about you? Go ahead, Tim. Um, it's the people in the story. Yeah, very good. The characters in the story are the people. And we sometimes talk about a protagonist and an antagonist as two of the characters in a story. Do you know what those words mean? Not really. Oh, good. I'm glad because I get to tell you. That's oh, kind of oh, fun. Before you tell, Go, maybe Mrs. A. you can figure it out from the word itself. Have you ever heard the prefix pro before? Who's heard the, the prefix pro? Have you heard it, Tim? Against. Oh, and antagonist. Anti means against. Anti and, means against. And pro good. means for. Right, exactly. Right. So a protagonist is essentially the character that you are for in the story, or the one that you're following yeah. in the story. The protagonist is essentially the main character in the story. And you're absolutely correct in saying that anti means against. So an antagonist is the character in the story who's working against the goals and ambitions of of the protagonist or the main character. Right. So JT says in the chat box, the protagonist is the hero and the antagonist is the villain. Now in a melodrama, you would be absolutely correct. But what about, what about stories where the main character is a bad guy? Some other story besides Treasure Island, you mean? Yeah. Some other story besides Treasure Island. What if we're talking about a story in which the main character happens to be a convict and we're following him through a day. And the antagonist then would be the police officer who's tracking him down, right? So it's not the case that in every single story, the protagonist is the hero. He may be a bad guy. The protagonist is the main character. That's why we like to say that, because it varies from story to story. Right. So characters include protagonists and antagonists as well as other characters. And we can have fun discussions about which is which as we uh, look through Treasure Island. Let's keep going around the story chart real quickly because I want to make sure and get into the story in just a minute or two. Look down at the bottom of the story chart at the word conflict. We think that there's a conflict in every story, but let's talk about what that means. What is the conflict of a story? Jacob, your hand is up and click your mic one time to unmute yourself and tell me what you know about a conflict. What's the conflict of a story? Well, it's the fight on the... I think it, in this one, it'd be man versus man. Okay, good. It's a, sometimes the conflict in a story is between two people, a man versus man conflict. So do you mean like the conflict is the problem in the story? 
Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Can you think of some other kinds of conflict besides man versus man? Well, getting to the island and finding the treasure. Ah, right. So in Treasure Island, our main characters are trying to find the treasure. And And what is their problem? Why can't they have what they're looking for? What's the problem there? It's hidden. It's hidden. That's right. Not only are people trying to prevent them from finding it, but it's hidden. So maybe there's a man versus nature conflict too. Hard to get to an island, hard to find something that's hidden, but also man versus man conflict, as you've just said, because some people want to prevent them from reaching their goals, right? Mr. A, can we make a list of the kinds of conflicts that you're discussing right now? Sure, we sure can. We've got man versus man. And man versus nature, man versus man conflicts are the kind where two people are at odds with each other, like what we were talking about when we were talking about protagonists and antagonists. Right. 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 Somebody opposes the main character and his goals. That's a man versus man conflict. Yes. Man versus nature. What would that look like? Well, I think um, uh, I think it was Jacob just said it. A man versus nature conflict would be trying to to get across an angry sea or okay. survive overnight in the cold Good. or climb a mountain or something right. like that. A, a man trying to overcome the elements, yeah. the natural elements in order to reach his goal. And What other kinds of conflicts are there? Blake and Abby just said man versus God. Ooh, what's that? That's a good one. Who can tell us what man versus God is? Blake and Abby, you guys just contributed. You want to raise your hand and explain? Okay, go ahead. Can you hear me? I wonder if you should check your audio. Check your audio and make sure that your microphone is working because it looks like you're open, but we're not hearing you. Okay, and raise your hand back up, Blake and Abby, when you guys have checked that out. Um, Let's see, we have a man versus self. Can we... Can I'm just listing. That? Yes, we can. I'm just okay. listing what we found in the chat box, Mrs. A, and then we can go back and talk about them all. Okay. So we're talking about man versus God. Charlotte, your hand is up. What do you want to tell us about a man versus God conflict? Hi, Charlotte. Can you hear us? You want to talk? Yeah. Oh, hey, there you are, there Charlotte. You are. Man versus God. Your hand is up to describe that. It is. Uh, well, your uh, hand was up for one reason or uh, another. Why don't you go ahead and tell us what you got? So man versus God, I think would be like, uh, uh, they're having, like God might be preventing them somehow. I, I'm, I'm not really sure. Yeah, that's God. exactly that's a right. good guess. Very good. Yeah. When, yeah. when the, one of the characters in the story is God or the gods or fate or destiny or something like that. And the main characters right. are trying to get their to their goal, and God prevents them. That's a man versus God conflict. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. Thank See, you, Charlotte. You'd have that kind of a conflict in a story like, for example, The Odyssey, where right. the main character, Odysseus, is trying to get home, but he's angered one of the Greek gods, and yeah. he's preventing him. Right. Now... Um, Let's see. We have man versus self also in the chat box. Man versus self. Uh, Anybody have an idea what that is? Man versus self. Uh, JT, your hand is up. Let me unmute you and tell us, what's a man versus self conflict? Um, Man versus self would be if somebody was like 
possessed or something, and they have to try and control that. Uh-huh. They have to get rid of that thing that's possessing them. Okay. Well, think about that. Yeah, that's true. I think that would definitely be, be right. But Think look about at- that a little more deeply. I like that idea. That's a cool storyline. What possesses the main character? You've said the main character is possessed, which implies that he's possessed by something or someone, which may be more of a man versus the supernatural, man versus God or the devil, right? Right. So if we're going to talk about man versus self, what do we mean by that in distinction of that kind of a possession storyline? Elijah, your, your hand just went up. What do you think about that? Talk to us about a man versus self conflict some more. The man may have to make a decision, and he's really confused about making the decision, and there's lots of factors in making the decision. Yeah, right. And he has to decide on something. Okay. Good. Good. So he's puzzled, or he's um, taxed, or stressed, or uncertain. Blake and Abby say, it could be when there's someone who wants to do something but knows it's wrong, so good. he's divided. Very good. Someone who's divided or plagued in his mind about something. That comes or someone up. someone who's guilty That about comes up something. in Treasure Island, doesn't it? It does indeed. With our main character, Jim Hawkins. And some of the decisions that he makes on the island and immediately regrets because he has acted rashly. Like when he takes French leave. When he takes French leave. Exactly right. Yes. Good. Okay. And there's one final conflict that we often talk about. Don't know how much it comes up in this particular story. And that's a man versus society conflict. Sometimes the main character in a story wants to believe a certain way or act a certain way, and everybody around him disagrees with that or says it's wrong and tries to get him to be somebody that he's not. That's a man versus society conflict. But when here's... you've got a, a conflict that's like a war, you've got a man versus uh, society right. conflict course, as well. Of course. Yeah. Now, here's the thing. All stories have a conflict. And one of the things we're going to be talking about when we talk about Treasure Island today is what kind of conflict is most important in this one? Now, I want to get through and talk about the story specifically, but we're going to also talk about the plot. And in fact, a lot of our discussion is going to center around the plot of the story. And I'm, Mrs. A, I'm going to leave specific um, discussion of these elements until we actually talk about them. Very good. So we're going, to, we're going to move through as we talk about Treasure Island, the exposition of the plot, which is defined here, the rising action, the climax, the denouement, which is a fun word we'll talk about in a minute, and the conclusion. Those parts of the story chart comprise the plot of the story, and we'll talk about them in some detail in a minute. But the plot itself is just basically the simple story without every single detail. Yeah, that's right. It's like the skeleton of the the story. Or the overall shape of the story. And then finally, we always talk about the theme, and some of you have mentioned theme already. The theme of a story is the main idea that the story is written to discuss, and that is the point of reading a book closely and understanding it, and really the point of enjoying it is to understand the author's theme and relate to it in one way or another. And so our discussion today of Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson is going to be aimed at using setting and characters and conflict and plot to understand the author's theme. So, everybody pretty clear on what we're after? Let's go ahead, Mrs. A. Let's do it. I think I did okay, didn't I? You got through it pretty quickly. Yeah? Okay. I'm impressed. (laughs) Those of you who have ever been in our classes before know that Mrs. A doesn't like the administrative details. She likes to dive right into the story itself. And so, let's do... Let's take some notes in a discussion about this story, beginning with the setting. 
We already talked about the fact that the setting is where the story happens and when. So let's have some contributions. Where does this story happen and when? Charlotte, your hand is up. Unmute yourself by clicking the microphone icon one time and tell us where and when this story happens. Um, so this story, when it begins, it happens at kind of like an inn where uh, we kind of introduce the characters and... Good. What What's the name of the inn? Uh, it's called the General Benbow, I think. Okay, the Admiral Benbow. Oh, right. Right. Very good. And uh, this is the uh, the home of whom? Tell us about this inn. Uh, it's the home of uh, Mr. and Mrs. Hawkins and Jim Hawkins, who's the main character of the story. And that's where it just kind of all starts. Okay, good. And what other settings, what other places are important in this story? Um, I definitely think the ship is one of them. And... Probably the, the island, of course, was pretty important. Okay, good. Right, so the Hispaniola. So the Hispaniola is the ship they take to Treasure Island. And then obviously the setting of Treasure Island itself. Can you guys remember the other name of Treasure Island? The second name? Charlotte, you're still unmuted. What do you think? Do you remember? Uh... No, I don't remember. I think they call it Skeleton Island. Yes, which is Skeleton full of Island. Boating, That's right? right. Foreshadowing elements. I'm going to write that down in the notes. Skeleton Island. Okay, good. These three settings are the main ones, I think, of the story. What kind of a mood or atmosphere do these three settings create in your mind? What kind of mood does this story take on because of the places where it happens? Uh, Dominic, let me see if you got your phone worked out. Uh, let's see. Dominic, if you can hear me. I need you to go hash four five hash. And try again. Hash four five hash. Some for some reason I'm not getting your audio. We'll come back to you. Jacob, what kind of mood or atmosphere does this story take on because of the places where it happens? Um, I think it'd be about the 1700s at the time. And be, being at that time period, when the author wrote it, pirates weren't too common at that point. So. Okay, so it's, it happens in the 18th century. The 1750s, maybe, is a pretty good guess, although um, Robert Louis Stevenson doesn't give us a specific date. And actually, this is a period when piracy was kind of at its height. This is the, this is the era of pirates, believe it, it or is. not. It's the tail end of the era of pirates. Yeah. Because that, that period of um, kind of maritime piracy and warfare and things like that went from about 1500 to the late 1700s. That, you know, did you notice that... It, that the author didn't give us the exact date. I just said that. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. He says, in this year of grace, 17 blank Something, yeah. in the first, yeah. So the age of pirates went from like 1500 to 1800. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of at the tail end of it. But 
Um, so it's definitely in the age of pirates, and it also takes place on a on a Caribbean island, and it also takes place on a sailing ship. And all these elements of the setting of the story contribute to a mood or an atmosphere. And JT says in the chat box, adventure. Absolutely, adventure. This, is, this creates an adventurous mood, doesn't it? Let's look at how. When you look at the initial pages, that initial setting of the Benbow Inn, we didn't talk about where the Benbow Inn is situated. Where is it? And what's that place like? Joshua, your hand is up. Where? Uh, let me see. Let me unmute you. Where is the Admiral Benbow Inn situated, Joshua? And you're muted on your side. So click your mic one time, and we'll be able to hear you. There you go. Oh, Um... Um, I think that, uh, where the Bimbo Inn is, is, like, settled, um, I think it's, like, kind of a place, uh, kind of with, like, kind of shabby-ish. Okay, good. Kind of with fear, because, um, this is, like, the age of pirates, and pirates are, like, really, really fierce and deadly. Yeah. Good. They don't, and it's, like, uh, they don't know, um, it's, like, uh, will this day be our last? Will um, everything hold together? Okay. Yeah, I think it, I think I think it's kind of like that. Yeah. Okay. Good. So you're talking about the presence of the initial pirate among the people that live at the at the Admiral Benbow, producing fear, and even more so because the place that they live, the Admiral Benbow Inn, has seen some better days. It's yeah. kind of a rundown hotel, which reflects the poverty of the people who live there. And produces this kind of sense of foreboding. It's also by the sea. Good, good. Yeah, it's by the sea. Jalen says coastal that. coastal in England. And so that it's kind of, you, you just sense sort of um, shadows. Yeah, with all that, with adventure sneaking around the edges. And mm-hmm. not necessarily happy adventure either. Because of the presence of, of uh, the old captain who comes to take up residence at the Admiral Benbow he brings that sense of foreboding and fear to him right. with him as well. Right. Okay, good. Good. Let's, um, Mrs. A, I know that there's lots of other things we could say about the setting. But oh, we could talk about the setting for a long time, but I know we're on a, we're on a schedule here in order to get through this in the amount of time that we have allotted to us. But in your own time, if you continue to contemplate the setting, think about the other places we've mentioned, the ship and the island itself. What are the elements that the author builds into the story in his descriptions of these places? And how do those elements contribute to setting the mood? Are these places that you would want to go? Why or why not? Right? Do they fill you with anxiety and foreboding for the main character? Why? Mm. Mostly, I would say the presence of pirates themselves is one of the things that contribute to that feeling. And that leads us into thinking about the characters of this story, which I I think is where Robert Louis Stevenson does a lot of his good work, wouldn't you say? I do. And I think it's so interesting. Piracy has kind of a romance surrounding it, kind of a mystique, Mm, right? mm -hmm. And I think it might have something to do with the fact that these pirates that are so scary and foreboding, um, like we just talked about... um, They're out there on the sea in the sunshine with the sparkly water on a sailing expedition. And all of those things have really positive connotations. So you've got these fierce guys in a positive 
scenario or scene, which really does kind of point up one of the thematic ideas that's present throughout the story, this idea of appearance versus reality, Mm. right? The conflict between what you see on the surface and what's really going on underneath. Wait a minute, Mrs. A. You're saying that because pirates are, are some of the main characters in this story and they seem romantic and adventurous and they seem like the the kinds of things we would they're attractive to us yes right yes they seem romantic and adventurous and attractive and yet they are bloodthirsty murderers pretty much i can't type bloodthirsty murderers while i say bloodthirsty murderers so you get this appearance versus reality kind of thing okay so, okay so this emphasizes the theme or one of the themes of appearances versus reality. In other words, the idea that things are not always what they seem. Exactly. Ah, exactly. Interesting. And you get that right from the setting of yeah, the story, right yeah. from the outset. Right. But also from the characters, the fact that pirates are some of the main characters, mm-hmm. right? Let's list a couple of the main characters and have you guys tell me maybe who your favorite character in this story is and what kind of person that character is. Identify a character for me and describe them for me so as to tell me why you thought they were a great character in this story. Joshua, you go first. Unmute yourself on your side. Go ahead, Joshua. Uh, I think my favorite character is probably, was probably like uh, Jim Hawkins because like um, he like uh, gets taken by pirates, but he's like on... Um, like this amazing pirate ship and this amazing adventure and he could like find a lot of money and that could like uh change his and his family's future oh excellent great jim hawkins so um would you call jim hawkins the protagonist of our story joshua i probably would yeah how come I probably would. um because like um he's like um he's uh kind of, he's like uh sort of like uh uh, friendly, um, uh, although like he's in like pirates, he's within pirates. Um, um, they don't really, uh, like attack him a lot cause he's like on the ship. Okay. And now well, that's we, all we, true of them. Uh, the fact that he is friendly and all that, you're absolutely right about that. But does that make him the protagonist? What makes him the protagonist? And you're right in calling him that. I think it is. I think he is the protagonist, but why? What is what makes a protagonist? Why what what one... do we mean by that word? Um. Well, protagonist means like, uh, like you said before, like the person you're, uh, the, like the person you're for, like yes, the, yes, good guy or something. Yeah, and like the is against the protagonist. Yes, good. very good. So Jim Hawkins is the the one we're following in the story, the Ch- one we're rooting for. Right. In this particular story. Jacob also mentions that he is the, the, the story is told primarily from his perspective. Yes. He's so the he narrator. He's the main character. And he's the main character. And that yeah. changes for a moment. We get Dr. Livesey's um, narrative midway through the story. But Jim Hawkins is the main character. It's, it is Jim that we're most concerned about throughout the course of the story. And we're tracking his adventure. Yeah, good. Right? It's his goals and ambitions that the story traces. So I'm going to write it this way. That's a good way to put it, Mrs. A. His goals and ambitions are the main subject of the story, and that makes him the protagonist. 
Okay, good. Another way, if you're confused, if you're looking at a story and you're trying to figure out who the main character is, because every now and then you'll read one and you'll think, I don't know who the main character is. Who is the main character in the story? If you're ever confused about that, think about which of the characters change the most throughout the course of the story. That's a good thought. Because usually the main character in his pursuit of an object discovers things about himself, about the world, is changed in some way as a result of his experiences. So if you're having a hard time locating him, um, think about that. Yeah, good, good. Let's let's come up with a list of some of the other colorful characters in this story. And again, what I want to do is call on you and have you say, I think we should add this name to the list. This is who this character is, and this is what kind of person he's what, what kind of person he is. And while you're thinking about other characters, I just want to ask one question about Jim Hawkins. Mr. A, you put he that he is the young protagonist of the story. And I see that you put young in there on purpose. Why? What's so significant about his age? Oh, well, I think it's really important that he is young. And obviously he is young, right? First of all, he's younger than Dr. Livesey. He's younger than Squire Trelawney. He's younger than Long John Silver. He's a boy. And I think when (laughs) something you said a minute ago is really important, that the protagonist very often undergoes a significant change. And that's one of the reasons why the story's about him, because that's what the author wants to talk about. And in this story, isn't it true that Jim does a lot of growing up. He talks in earlier in the story about how a pirate adventure just sounds like a wonderful thing, and he's all excited about it. And by the end of the story, he says, Wayne Ropes and Oxen could not drag me on another pirate adventure. I just want to stay home. And he <laughs> learns a lot about how to behave and how to make good decisions and how to relate to people. Does a lot of growing up in this story. He does. So it's important that he's young and in that period of life when we're becoming the man that we're going to be. That's kind of gaining some sort of knowledge of the world. Yeah. And that part of this story, that coming of age part is another important theme. That appearances versus reality idea that you mentioned a minute ago is a major theme of this story. And also that's the theme of coming of age of growing up and learning how to make decisions. As a matter of fact, if Jim had been an older man, the story would be utterly changed, wouldn't it? Yeah. I don't think you could tell the same story if Jim was already a grown up. I don't either. Yeah, really good point. So that becomes not only an element of character, but also an element of the story's setting. We might ask, in what period of the main character's life is the story set? Right. Right? It's set in his childhood. In Jim's Because it would be a very youth. changed story if it were set in another period of his life. Yeah, good idea. Good idea. Let's quickly list some of the other colorful, wonderful characters in Treasure Island by taking a few hands. Um, Titus, your hand is up, and I hope it's because you want to talk about a character for our list. Go ahead, Titus. My favorite is Long John Silver because he's really dashing and smart looking. Ah, yeah, with the Long John Silver with the peg leg and the parrot on his shoulder. A quintessential pirate. Yes. Okay, and who is he, Titus? He's like the um, uh, the guy who starts mutiny and the guy who ends mutiny. Okay, good. He starts the mutiny and he ends the mutiny. Let me ask you this, Titus. Is it easy for you to tell what side of things Long John Silver is on in this story? No, not at all. No, not at all, he says. No, it isn't. How come? Because he keeps changing signs. He does, doesn't he? Yeah. And why does he do that? He's always switching sides in the conflict. Why? He's trying to be on the winning side. 
Yeah. Yes. Very good. Do you think this, this, and this happens several times in the story, doesn't it, Titus? Yeah. Is he persuasive, Long John Silver? Can he always convince you that he's on your side? Oh, yeah. He does it all the time. He does, right? It, is Jim um, particularly susceptible to Long John Silver? Uh, kind of. Yeah. Jim gets persuaded several times, doesn't he? Yeah. What is it about Long John Silver that makes him so persuasive? His attitude of authority is what I think. Ah, especially when he's dealing with the other pirates in the mutiny. He has an attitude of authority. He's their boss, isn't he? Yes. What about when he's dealing with Jim or with Dr. Livesey or the captain? What's his attitude then? Like cordial and like companionship and like, oh yeah, you're my old bud. I'll be with you. Yeah, <laughs> Very exactly. good. He's so exactly friendly. Exactly right. Cordial and companionship and yay, you're my bud. I love it. That's perfect. So he sort of changes his, his stripes uh, according to the situation, right? Yeah. Another really good example, Mrs. A, of what you said before about the difference between what things seem and what they really are. It's hard right. to tell. Right. On the out, from the outset, it appears that Long John Silver is a great guy, right? He even, he even vies for um, the father role, the father figure role in Jim's life for a little minute there. Yeah, Jim can't decide whether to whether to um, look to the captain and Squire Trelawney and Dr. Livesey as his role models or Long John Silver. So if we're going to think about Long John Silver categorically, we've already said Jim Hawkins is the protagonist or the main character of the story. Does Long John Silver oppose Jim Hawkins in his final goals? In other words, is he an antagonist in this story? What think you? Um, depending on the situation, I think he ain't, and sometimes he's not. Ah, there you go. Sometimes he is, and sometimes he isn't. Can you explain? For example, when on the ship, when Jim Hawkins was spying on the meeting, he was the antagonist. But after, when he joined the game, with the Jim Hawkins group, he was kind of not fair, especially when he saved Jim Hawkins from when Jim Hawkins stumbled upon their group. Very good. Exactly right. He actually does, he does manful work on both sides. When he's leading the mutiny and Jim Hawkins overhears him in the apple barrel, he's clearly an antagonist and bent on opposing the captain and the good men on the ship. On the other hand, he does save... Jim Hawkins' life from the other pirates in the whole scene around the stockade. It's hard to tell. It is hard to tell. Do you get the sense as you're reading that we're supposed to see Long John Silver as a, um, a friend of Jim's, according to the author? Or are we supposed to be suspicious of him and worried for Jim as Jim interacts with him? Great question. Great question. Uh, JT, are we supposed to... Um, are we rooting for Long John or are we suspicious of him? Can you hear me, JT? Oh, you muted yourself. I'm sorry. I didn't see that. Uh, Elijah, let's go with you. Elijah, do you see it? It's that green little icon that looks like a mic. 
Um, by the way, this I should remind you guys, you don't need to mute yourselves because you're all muted unless I unmute you. So don't worry about uh, clicking that microphone to mute yourself. I'll, I will do it for you. Okay, maybe Elijah didn't mean to raise his Okay, hand. that's okay. Dominic, you've been trying to get on for a while. Let's give you a try. Go ahead, Dominic. And you are muted on your side, so click your mic once to unmute yourself. There you go. Good. Now you don't have to touch it anymore. Go ahead, Dominic. Uh, well, I think that he's kind of an that you're supposed to be afraid of him ah. because he's kind of dangerous. I think so too. Yeah, maybe it's just the mom in me, but every time Jim um, had anything to do with Long John Silver, I was fearful for him. I was protective of him in my own mind and heart, thinking, oh boy, don't spend time with that one. He's a bad egg. Well, yeah, and I think Dominic's right. If we're, we're a little bit afraid of Long John Silver, and if one of the main points of this story or the main themes of this story is Jim Hawkins coming of age mm-hmm. and growing up and learning how to make good decisions, Long John Silver is a threat. He is because the appearance is one thing and the reality is another, which makes him doubly dangerous. Yeah, he could deceive Jim Hawkins into making bad decisions and growing up badly. Yes. Instead of making good decisions and growing up well. Think about this for a minute. Answer this question for me. What is Long John Silver's MO? What is it that makes him tick? What is his, um, uh, this is, this his is highest that. priority. His greatest good. Highest priority. His highest priority. Charlotte, what does he want? Charlotte, your hand has been up. What does Long John Silver want the most At in this story? At any given moment, what does he want? And you, there you, there go. you go. He wants to get the treasure. Okay, that's true. He wants to get the treasure. And when the treasure's gone, what does he want? When he discovers that the treasure's been secreted away and he can't have it, what does he want then? Let's you're, think about you're that You're exactly for a right. That up until the point when the treasure is out of the question, his goal is the treasure, pure and simple. He wants the money. Timothy says in the chat box, then he wants to live uh-huh. after that. He wants to save his skin, his right? His main goal is to save his own skin. Don't you think that the greatest good for Long John Silver is whatever is good for Long John Silver at any moment? Yep. And those things might change. In fact, they do change. They change with the wind and the direction that it's blowing. So sometimes he acts nice towards a person. If acting nice towards them will get him what he wants and help him succeed in his goal of getting his own object. And if that ceases to help him, then he changes his spots like a leopard, right? exactly right. And he'd just as soon kill you as look at you. Right. This story is fun because it has a really clear protagonist and a very... It's an obvious choice who the main antagonist in the story is, but the antagonist is interesting because it's not a real black and white no, situation. No, like like that other student said, his objective is changing. Like he changes his behavior so often. Sometimes it seems that he's working at cross purposes with the main character's goals of finding the treasure. And other times it seems like he's kind of helping and playing along, right? Yeah. Sometimes he's working towards the main character's goal of surviving right. this pirate attack. And other times he's on the um, the opposing team. So we have to look a little deeper in order to discover that he's an antagonist. And the, the reason he's an antagonist is because his greatest good is not 
that Jim Hawkins would grow up, would grow up come well. to maturity, right. gain a good ethic, With right? that, and be that's, provided for. And those things are the things that we as readers want to see. Right. His greatest good is himself Yeah. at so, any moment. So he is an antagonist. He's a threat. He's right. a threat to Jim. But boy, what a fun threat to watch. And and I got to ask this question before we go on and talk about, uh, make a list of the other neat characters in the story. I want to say one more thing. Were you, as you read the story, persuaded by Long John Silver? Did Long John Silver manage to work his magic on you, the reader, the same way he almost did on Jim Hawkins, the protagonist? I chat, chat me an answer to that question. Do you think he was strangely seductive? Because I did. I the, did too. The first time I read this story when I was younger, I thought, Long John Silver, I, I don't know what to make of him. I kind of like him. But against and, your will, against your better judgment, right? Yeah. Some people, uh, looks like we're getting about, about this. <laughs> I like that. Never. <laughs> Just as many no's as yeses. Well, I will admit to being seduced somewhat by Long John Silver's personality. He was just so colorful. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, Charlotte says he was super suspicious at the very beginning. Well, Charlotte, I think that's obviously true. That just means you were a good reader. Yeah. Did you're you just, suspect him or because of his one leg? No, you're more. You're just more <laughs> suspicious a person than me. That's all, Charlotte. You're like Mrs. A. By the by, do you remember what Billy Bones, uh, back at the Admiral Bimbo Inn, paid little Jim Hawkins to watch for, or who he paid him to watch for? Yeah, he paid him to watch for a seafaring man with one leg. With one leg. Now, when you see Long John Silver come on the scene as the cook, do you suspect that he's that man? Of course you do. I sure didn't. Not you initially. Didn't? Initially, he was just such a nice guy. And what I, what's more significant is not whether I did or didn't, but whether or not Jim did or didn't. Right. Because it was... never crosses Jim's mind. No, it never does. That's Why true. is that? Why do you think Jim doesn't uh, recognize him at the start because of that one leg? Well, it's because of the of what the kids have been saying of of how um, companionable and cordial and slick with his words he is. Because Jim thinks that that one-legged man that he's been told is so murderous is going to act murderous, is going to appear as malevolent, as evil, and as ugly as murder actually is. Yeah. Jacob says, you don't think of him as a black-hearted culprit that he turns out to be. No, you don't. Which is kind of maybe... Stevenson's point. It is. And also a testament to Stevenson's talent, yes. too. And by the way, as we, and I promise we are going to go into characters, I just have to mention this one other thing. This is one of the most um, used stories in history in plays and movies. This has used? Been, what do you mean, Mr. This has been the most dramatized oh, story of uh, just about of all time. Isn't that cool? That is cool. Yeah. People love Treasure Island. Speaking of which, though, we need to list some of the other characters before we talk about the plot of this story. And I want to just list them quickly, because I think it's pretty clear that the main protagonist has already been listed, and the primary antagonist has been listed. The rest of the characters in this story provide color, and they help the plot move forward. And so let's list them very, very quickly. Uh, Jacob, your hand is up. Give us another of the main characters in the story and tell us who that character is. Well, it's very interesting that this bird is called hit uh, Long John Silver's bird is called Captain Flint. Why because, is that interesting? Because he used to sail along with him. Oh, so yes. So we could call Captain Flint one of the minor characters in the story too. Even the though old... he never shows up. Right. He he's a long dead captain. 
who buried all the treasure that this entire story was revolving around. Oh, good. I'm going to put it this way. Silver's parrot, but also a long dead captain whose treasure it was originally. Very good. Very good. Did you know that Captain Flint was a real person? (coughs) Like historically? I read he was a fictional character, a fictional pirate. Nope. He was a historic person who died in Savannah in 1733. Wow. There are actually references or allusions is the literary term that we'd use here um, to a lot of real pirates. For example, Pirate Kid, Blackbeard, Davis. The Dread Pirate Roberts. Yes. Israel <laughs> Hands was a historical person and a crew member of the infamous Pirate Blackbeard. The Cassandra that they mentioned is, was an actual real ship. So there are lots of allusions to real piracy. That is so cool. That is very cool. Um, some other pirates that we want to mention. Dominic, go ahead. Not pirates, characters. Characters. Um, uh, well, Squire Trelawney. Good. Squire Trelawney. Good. What about him? Um, well, he, he kind of helps everybody. Okay. And who is he? He's Dr. Livesey's squire. Okay, good. A squire is like a, a landowner in England, a magistrate, uh, one of the, the first citizens of the town. He's the guy with the money to finance the treasure expedition. And he and Dr. Livesey, or Livesey, however you want to pronounce that, um, come from Jim's hometown, and they're accompanying him on this treasure-seeking venture, and they're kind of like the adults on the scene. Along with Captain Smollett, who they hire to run the Hispaniola. Yeah. So what function do they provide um, in this coming-of-age story for Jim? Mm. I like how you put it, Mrs. A, the adults on the scene. If Long John Silver is a threat to Jim coming-of-age and decency, what function do Dr. Livesey and Admiral Trelawney provide or fulfill? Anybody have an idea about that? What do they do? Uh, let me see. How about let, Joseph? I don't think we've heard oh, from Joseph Oh, you're yet. right. I don't think we've heard from Joseph yet. Joseph, click your mic once and unmute yourself and answer that question. If Long John Silver presents one kind of adult figure, what do the squire and Dr. Livesey and the captain represent? Trustworthy men? Yes. Yes, you're nice. exactly right. They're trustworthy men. As opposed to the pirates who can't be trusted, these men are men that Jim ought to trust because they're known. They're known figures. His parents trusted them. They've been in his life since he was very, very young, and they are for him. So they kind of provide kind of a moral compass for Jim in the story. Oh, so they, okay, that's, that's a good way to put it. They are moral uh, compasses for Jim. Also, I think it's interesting, and Joseph, tell me if you agree with this. In their case, appearances and realities are the same. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's right, Joseph? They are who they seem to be in this story? Yes. Yeah, Jim doesn't have to guess about them. He knows them. Even though they're different, right? They have three totally different personalities. The squire is kind of like a big bumbling fool, and he pays too much for stuff and trusts people when he shouldn't, and... Dr. Livesey is very straightforward and shrewd, and Captain Smollett is kind of the same way. But all three of them are exactly who they appear to be from beginning to end. Completely different than Long John Silver, who, as we've said, is a bit of an enigma. Ooh, I love it. Very good. Give me some more characters, you guys. Uh, Charlotte, go ahead. Did they just call my name? Yeah, it's your turn, Charlotte. Who, who would you like to add to our character list? 
Um, <clears throat> ben Gunn. He was sort of the remote guy on the island. And he was the one that uh, buried the treasure so that the uh, that Long John couldn't find it. So he kind of he kind of helped Jim and his friends. Good. Good. So he moves the treasure so the pirates cannot find it. <clears throat> Excellent. And that and I love the way you just summarize why, uh, how he's important to the plot. He's an old pirate. I added this. He's an old pirate whom Flint had marooned when he originally deposited the treasure on the island. So he's been there for some three years and has managed to move the treasure. So the pirates can't find it. And by the way, his actions also make the treasure map worthless except as a bargaining chip. And Dr. Livesey uses it, the treasure map, to get the one up on Long John Silver after he knows it's useless already, mm-hmm. which is a pretty cool plot twist. Good. Ben Gunn's a great example for our character list. Jalen, I haven't heard from you yet. Go ahead. Hi. Can you hear me? Sure. Loud and clear. Okay, I want to mention the crew. Okay, go ahead. There's the crew in Hispaniola, like Israel Hands and Adam Abraham Gray. And what do you want to say about them? Why are they important? Some of them are one of the mutinous ones who joined John Silver. And the other ones want to help the doctor. Okay, good. Some of them... Join the mutiny, and some remain loyal. And so they're important because they fill out the cast so that there's actually a group on either side in this little war over the treasure. Yeah, I think that's really an important point. Do you remember Abraham Gray that you mentioned? Yeah. What side was he on? He was. He ended up being a mutineer, didn't he? No, he was the honest sailor, the one who refused to mutiny. And he plays a really important role in this, um, this story where Jim is concerned. Because remember, Jim is hiding in the bushes when all this occurs? Yeah. And he watches Long John Silver proposition this guy, trying to get him to come over to, this, to the, the other side. Right. right. And when the guy says no and remains honest, what does Long John Silver do? You guys remember? It's a pretty dramatic moment in the story. Jim's shocked. Is that when he kills him? Yeah, he knifes him in the back. Oh, yeah. As he's walking away. You remember that? Yes. So what function does that have in, in driving the story's plot forward? Well, all of a sudden, Jim sees what's really true about Long John Silver. He's shocked because he didn't know for sure that this guy was as depraved as all that. He didn't and, know he was murderous, treacherous. And so when Jim finally witnesses Long John Silver commit a cold-blooded murder... He realizes he's been taken in. Yes. I mean, even, even though he overheard the plots to mutiny while he was in the apple barrel, the, this, the benign appearance of Long John Silver, you know, his kindness, his generosity, his goodwill towards Jim, um, keep Jim from really thinking too hard about that. And it's not until he sees this murder that it all comes home to him. And I would argue that even after that, Long John Silver's personality has a magnetic pull for Jim. I mean, obviously Jim knows for sure that he's a bloodthirsty murderer, but Stevenson does a really nice job of to up to the very end of the story, making you 
I don't know, not, you don't like him anymore, but you can still feel his power. Yeah. His, his pull. Great. The crew is an important character. Any other characters we want to mention? Sayeda, go ahead. Your turn. Um, the doctor. Oh, looks like we got a little feedback there. Did you say the doctor? Yes. Okay, good. Yeah, we've listed the doctor up here. Do you want to say something else about the doctor that we haven't said yet? Um, yes. He is a leader of the group. Ah, okay. So he's a leader of the of the good guys, you would say, right? Yeah. Okay, good. And as such, provides that good example for Jim that we've been talking about. Good, okay. Um, nice job, everyone. Let's go ahead and move on from characters and talk about the plot of this story. And using the story chart that we talked about at the beginning of our discussion, let's put the events of this story in the white uh, circles or ovals that go around the story pyramid. And let's see if we can't combine what we've said about the setting and the characters to understand the author's theme by looking at the plot. Now, the first thing we do when we're talking about plot, well, you can do it lots of different ways, but one of the things we do is we talk about the exposition, the introduction of the plot, and we summarize the details that we learn in the early parts of the story in a way that will help us understand the story's trajectory. So how would you summarize what we learn at the beginning? How would you summarize the exposition part of this story? Jacob, your hand is up. If you were to if you were to be describing Treasure Island and how Treasure Island begins to someone who had never read it, what would you tell them? That it's about Jim Hawkins, uh, the son of a innkeeper. Good. And that he meets a old seaman. Well, a seaman. Yep. And figures out what the pirates are after from the seaman. Ah, very from... good. Very good. In fact, you might even summarize by saying this. Young Jim Hawkins gets a treasure map from an old, from a, from an old seaman. And what, if I started the sentence that way, Jacob, what would you add? Young Jim Hawkins gets a treasure map from an old seaman and, and decides to do what? And decides to take the bait. (laughs) (laughs) Well done. Well done. And decides to take the bait. And I'm going to put an exclamation mark after that, because we know what we're talking about. Very good. I love that. I do too. Now, before we go on with our plot, let's just ask the question, what is it that Jim wants throughout okay. the course of the story? What are, what are his major objectives? Because that's going to help us figure out where the climax of the story is. Right. Occurs. In other words, what's the main problem what's in the, the story, problem story that what needs to be want? solved? Why can't he have it? Someone's already saying treasure. So we could, we could say, will Jim find the treasure? Obviously, that's one of the things he's after. Yep, very good. And that kind of drives the the actual details of the story, the plot. And that would be a man versus man conflict because there are other people that want it just as bad. Right, and they're going to fight him for it. Is that the only thing Jim wants? There's another way to understand that word want as opposed to desires. We can say that somebody wants something um, and mean that he lacks it. Yeah. What does Jim lack that he is gaining throughout the course of the story? Titus, go ahead. What does Jim want? Um, uh, he wants manhood. 
Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Why can't he have it? What are the obstacles to him coming to manhood? Um, there are people trying to stop him and going for themselves, and then he can't get what he needs and wants. Okay. okay. People trying to stop him. Also, think about this. People deceiving him. Yeah. Right? Long John Silver, in his own pursuit of his own selfish goals, deceives Jim all the time. But whose problem is that, really? When a character is trying to grow to maturity, who is his own worst enemy? I mean, why can't Jim see right from the start that Long John Silver is a bad egg? Yeah, Sieta says himself. Yeah, the reason he can't see that Long John Silver is a bad egg is because he's immature. He's a child. He's naive. He doesn't have enough experience. He's, he's innocent, naive. Right? He's, he's innocent. innocent. So as the story progresses and things like um, the scene that we just talked about where uh, the the good crew member who refuses to, to defect and become a mutineer gets killed. gets killed right before Jim's eyes. As things like the, that occur in the story, Jim loses his innocence. He goes yes. from innocence to experience. Yes. And he becomes mature. Yes. And also he learns to um, see, see people more clearly and make better decisions. Yes. And he is, his own immaturity and inexperience is the obstacle. And that's really shown up really in that little narrative section written by Dr. Livesey because Jim, or I'm sorry, Long John Silver is not the only one that we're not sure of as the story progresses right? Because then there's Jim. We're not sure of Jim. We're not sure of Jim yet. No. Maybe more, more specifically, Dr. Livesey and Squire Trelawney and the good guys aren't sure of Jim yet. Because, because he takes French leave. Yes. He, he abandons the good guys in critical moments and ends up in the camp of the bad guys so that the good guys can't tell by looking whose side he's on. No, they can't. They have to guess. As far as they know... He has abandoned them and joined the mutineers. They know that he was really affected by Long John Silver, right? Because Long John Silver is very, um, very alluring, very magnetic and charismatic. Yep. So whose side will Jim choose to, to be on? We could actually put that as a conflict, couldn't we? Well, it is, um, it is a, uh, kind of an underlying conflict in this coming of age story of yeah. Jim's, right? And as the reader, we follow Jim along and we watch his horror and we experience it with him. And we're never totally taken in by that appearance, um, of, uh, him being a turncoat in any, in any way. We see what happens with Israel hands aboard the deck, but Trelawney doesn't. And the Dr. Livesey doesn't. the doctor doesn't. doesn't. No. They're having to guess at Jim's true character in spite of appearances. Right. Showing up that appearance versus reality theme again. Right. I love it. So so really two two main conflicts. One having to do with the, the surface events of the story. Will Jim find the treasure? And the other one having to do with this underlying grow, uh, coming of age story. Will Jim, against his own immaturity and innocence, grow to... Manhood. By the way, this first conflict, Will Jim Find the Treasure, uh, could actually be written a little bit more specifically, who, uh, who will get the treasure? The good guys or the bad guys? And maybe we could even say, who will win the treasure? Smollett and Livesey and Trelawney or Silver and his mutineers? Okay, nice. Now, as you probably can guess, you can have all kinds of fun, long conversations about the various conflicts in a story. But for the sake of our discussion, these are two pretty good ones. Let's go ahead and plot these and see how they 
resolve themselves, and when. So we've got in our exposition, young Jim Hawkins gets a treasure map from an old seaman and decides to take the bait. Do we want to add anything to the exposition there? Uh, how about this? With the help of the good guys, they sail on the Hispaniola to Treasure Island, toward Treasure Island. That, that mentions Squire Trelawney and the doctor and uh, Captain Smollett, sort of. What about in the rising action section of the story? What happens as a result of this conflict of the treasure map and the conflict of Jim's immaturity? What events take place that have the effect of increasing the tension in your mind as you read? What about Jalen? Have we heard from Jalen? We have, but let's hear from Jalen again. Go ahead, Jalen. Okay. Well, we have the mutineers. The mutineers. I love it. That's it. Go ahead. Go ahead. So some of the crew members become mutinous, and that kind of becomes a bit of the problem. Okay, good. They take on sailors to help. They create a, they, they uh, draft a crew or hire a crew, and a good portion of them are pirates in disguise. Immediate conflict. Dun, dun, dun. Right, so the crew, composed mainly of pirates, threatens a mutiny. Perfect, Jalen. And this is a great episode in the rising action that increases the tension dramatically. What happens next? Um, you'd have to say in that whole section, you got to put that section in about Jim really liking the cook, right? Developing a friendship with um, Long John Silver. Okay, how because about, that increases the the conflict. How about this? The tension of whether he's going to grow to maturity. Yeah, Jim is taken in by yeah, Long John there we Silver. Go. There you go. Yeah, and then he finds that the the crew is pirates and they threaten a mutiny. Good. And then what happens? What happens next? Uh, Blake and Abby, have you guys got audio issues figured out? Can you hear me? Can I hear you? I'm have sorry, the, guys. Cannon, can they join by telephone? Maybe you could join by telephone if you like. Uh, if you go to the audio section of your control panel, you'll see a telephone number that you can call on a landline and join the uh, conversation that way. And that'll give you another avenue to join the audio portion of the class. And by the way, that's true for all of you. You can always join on telephone if um, if you're having trouble with your mic and speakers. But uh, let's see. Um, Charlotte, give us another element or episode of the rising action of this story. What happens after we know that there's a mutiny on the horizon. Can you hear me, Charlotte? Go ahead. Not really. Okay, no problem. Well, uh, Jacob, is... how about you? What happens next in the rising action? Well, I thought it was very interesting when Jim is in the apple barrel. That's when he starts to realize and everybody starts to realize what is actually going on. Ah, Good. yes. The apple barrel is a key component, a key moment when we all learn and Jim learns and the captain learns that the crew threatens a mutiny. Mrs. A, fill in a couple more details of this rising action for us. Well, Jim overhears Long John Silver trying to convince one of the other pirates, one of the honest pirates to come on over to the dark side, right? And, <laughs> and You're mixing your shocked. metaphors, Mrs. Yeah, a. he's a little shocked. So he tells on Long John Silver so that the squire and the captain and Dr. Livesey are aware of what's going on. But then he's tempted when they send a boat to shore uh, with Long John Silver in it, and he jumps in at the last minute. So 
the doctor's not sure what he's about. He oversees and overhears that scene we're talking about when, uh, when Long John Silver kills the other honest pirate, and he runs away into the woods. And that's when he meets Ben Gunn and discovers the corkle and all of those, those sorts of things. It has right. this little adventure. Meanwhile, the uh, good guys go ashore as well, and they have a battle with the mutineers at the stockade, which is a, 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 a fort that's been hastily built by the pirates in days of old on the island. And the good guys managed to hold the stockade. And when, well, eventually the, the bad guys take the fort. And when Jim returns to who he thinks is going to be his friends, yep. he finds himself in captivity. That's correct. It's occupied by the pirates. So we can say the battle for the stockade uh, goes both ways. And Jim is captured by the pirates. Yes. Now, now by this time, Jim has already had his experience uh, aboard the Hispaniola, and he's fought Israel hands to the death. And he's a little wiser, Jim, than he was when he had his little experience. Actually, we could say it this way. Jim captures the Hispaniola single-handedly mm-hmm. and then is captured by the pirates at the stockade. Yes. Interesting. It's so interesting. I love it. So they, um, what happens after... We're, we're to the point where Jim is in the, ca- the captivity of Long John Silver... And there's negotiations at the at the fence of the stockade. Between- Remember, this part is the part where Silver is on thin ice. Yeah, yeah. Because his pirate buddies are starting to turn on him, right? Turns out all pirates are like Long John Silver. The right. pirates are for the pirates and for nobody else. Right. And even when one of them, uh, one of their own, um, is is in a situation, they don't stand by him. Right. And so. The treasure map comes into play here. And Jim comes into play as sort of a bargaining chip. Right. Right? Long John Silver is using Jim as a bargaining chip. Dr. Livesey, on the other hand, is using the treasure map as a bargaining chip. And how does that matter turn out? How does that matter turn out? Jalen, your hand is up. I wonder if you could kind of give us a clue as to what's going on in this rising action section of the plot where things are getting tenser and tenser all the time. They're about to go on the treasure hunt. Okay, good. They're about to go on the treasure hunt. And who ends up going on the treasure hunt? Um, let's see. There are the pirates because they have the treasure map. Right. That might that they got from Doctor Livesey. Right. And they also bring Jim along. Yes, that is correct. And so, what happens when they follow the treasure map and get to the place where the treasure is indicated? What happens there, Jalen? There's no treasure. Okay, so we're going to put it in this way. The pirates use the map, but find no treasure. Now, I ask you this, Jalen. What do you think? Is this the climactic moment of the story when they get to the place where the treasure is supposed to be and find it gone? Mm, Not really. No? No. Let's talk about that idea of the climax of a story real quick. What is the climactic moment of any story? 
Mrs. A, can you can you tell us what's the climactic moment of any story? Well, it's the the point of reversal in the story. It's the point where we can see how the matter is going to turn out. It's the point of no return. Uh, okay, the Jacob says turning point, point in, yeah, the, in the chat good. box. Very good. It's the turning point in the story. Whatever the major conflict of the story is, the climactic moment connects with that conflict and begins to resolve it in one way or another. So what moment in this story fulfills that role? You're saying that the climax resolves a conflict. You could draw well, a line. It begins to resolve it. Yeah. It's not necessarily all tied up neatly with a little bow and handed to you as a fait accompli, but it is the beginning of the end of the story in large part. So is this scene where they come upon the treasure and find, or they come upon the spot and find nothing but an empty hole, is that the point at which the conflicts of this story begin to be resolved? Jacob, your hand is up. What do you think about that? I think that it is because that's when Silver decides that when the treasure's not there, he's no more oriented about the treasure He's now oriented about his life, as we said earlier. Okay. Yes, that's true. That's true. Look at the conflicts at the bottom of the of the story chart that we've identified as the main problems in this story. Who will win the treasure? That man versus man conflict. In order for a moment to be the climactic moment, it has to resolve or start to resolve that conflict. Does this moment do that? Does it begin to give us an answer to the question of who will win the treasure? It definitely seems so because when the treasure's not there, this is basically right then it either says, it tells you that the pirates don't have, they, they won't get it. It tells you right there pretty much. I agree. I think you're right. At least that man versus man conflict about who will win the treasure, the climactic moment is when the pirates realize they've been duped and that their treasure map is worthless and the treasure is nowhere to be found. So we could write that in in our climactic moment. And maybe we could say the gunfight. Or Gun's joke. Over the, oh, Ben Gunn's joke. That's mm-hmm. what it is. I think that's the name of the, the chapter. Yeah, right? there we go. Ben Gunn's joke is revealed. And the joke, of course, is that I moved it. Ha ha ha. That's one on you. I'm going to spell revealed before this is over. Very good. Okay, good. What about that other conflict? Will Jim grow to maturity and gain experience? Is this the climactic moment of that story, too? What do you guys think about that? In particular, Mrs. A, what do you think about that? Well, let's see. I I got uh, Titus and Charlotte and Jalen with their hands up. Titus, go ahead. We'll give Mrs. A, uh, we'll let her wait just for a second. Is this the climactic moment of that conflict as well? I think that it will be resolved. And I think the climactic moment of that one is when he when um he meets that with the squire and Dr. Trelawney, Squire Trelawney and Dr. Leslie and Captain Smollett. When he does what with the squire and the doctor and the captain? He um, meets them again. Oh, he joins up with them again? Yeah. I wonder about that too, because right there in the gunfight at the at the treasure hole. Jim says something. I can't remember exactly what the words are, but he he watches Long John Silver change sides again. Long John is obviously the leader of the pirates up until the point when he realizes that they've been duped and that the treasure map is worthless. And then Jim notices how fast he recovers. 
It doesn't take him any time at all to switch sides to get Jim behind him and say, watch out for trouble and here's a gun or something like that. And you can see, you can see that Jim is no longer deceived. He knows exactly what Long John Silver is doing. And he almost as if he has the same attitude toward Long John Silver as Dr. Livesey and Squire Trelawney and Captain Smollett. And in that moment, I think you could argue that Jim has become a man in the same way that the other three are. What do you say to that, Mrs. A.? Well, I like that you're paying attention to this internal development in Jim. I, I'm thinking about that scene when Dr. Livesey goes to the fort and is checking in on some of the injured men there and sees Jim. And they have their little conversation. Oh, yes. Right? And he's, he says, essentially, I, I, we didn't know what we were supposed to think when you turned up missing again. And now here you turn up here. What am I supposed to think about you, right? Um, and then Jim's... Jim is willing to stay with the pirates because he can't very well bolt with uh, the doctor, right? That's going to be bad for everyone. So this question of um, whether or not Jim is going to be on the good guy side or the bad guy side is decided in this moment because he is repentant for having confused his friends. And also, go ahead, go ahead. But the question of whether or not he'll survive to maturity is, is still there, still out there because there he is in the hands of the pirates and he's supposed to stay close to Long John Silver, who can't be trusted, really, right, to do anything but save his skin. And we have to wait to see how the matter's going to turn out. Yeah, but also in that moment, Jim um, refuses to go back on his word. He, he promised does. Long John Silver that he wouldn't escape over the wall. Yes, he does. And the doctor says, Jim, come on, Jim, jump over the wall. This is crazy. You're staying here with a bunch of murderers. And Jim says, I gave my word. Yep. And we find out what kind of man he's actually no, becoming. No, I replied, you know right well you wouldn't do the thing yourself. Neither you nor squire nor captain, and no more will I. Silver trusted me. I passed my word, and back I go. But doctor, you did not let me finish. If they come to torture me, I might let slip a word of where the ship is. For I got the ship, part by luck and part by risking, and she lies in the north inlet on the southern beach just below high water. So, not only... Does the doctor see the integrity that Jim has gained, but he also sees that Jim has found a solution or created a solution to their problem? Yeah. So maybe the climactic moment of the story happens earlier. Yeah, you can kind of see the beginning of the end. You could argue that that, what, that conversation at the stockade between Jim and the doctor is where we see how the matter will eventually turn out. Mm -hmm. So either one of those things uh, would be a good, either one of those scenes would be a good choice for the climactic moment of this story. However, that happens, we have something called a denouement that takes place after the climax. The denouement, which is the French word for unraveling, where you see how the matter will turn out in all of its details. What happens after that gunfight at the treasure hole that ties up all the loose ends of this story? JT, you want to answer that with some, some of the uh, other details of the story that you thought were interesting? I'll go ahead and unmute yourself and then dive right in. Go ahead, JT. Um, well, I think after they found the after they found out that the treasure wasn't there, Ben Gunn, he led them to where the treasure actually was. And Jim Hawkins found out that as he had suspected earlier when he was going to cut the rope of the um Hispaniola, he found he was thinking that the doctor was going to he was going to see Ben Gunn, and it turns out that he did, and that's when Ben Gunn gave him the um, map, which he had tweaked, so it looked like it was pointing at the place where the treasure was, but really it wasn't, because Ben Gunn had moved it all when he was marooned there. 
Right, exactly. And this is a perfect example of that denouement. We find out the hidden secrets of the story, and it's revealed to us in one way or another. And in this case, Ben Gunn tells his story, and we find out what's really happened. That's perfect. Good job, JT. So the good guys find the treasure with Ben Gunn's help. And what other things are tied up and resolved in this denouement section? Uh, Let's see. Titus, your turn. Um, I think when they found the treasure and stuff like that, but also when also when the pirates were defeated. Ah, okay. What happens to the pirates? How is it that they're defeated? I mean, some of them are, are killed in the gunfight, right? Yes, but there are a few survivors, and they are um, wandering around the island. Good. In fact, there's a particular name for what happens to them. Do you know what it is? Marooned? Yeah, they're marooned. What does that mean? I mean, you're left to die. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. They're left to die they're on the island. They're left to die on the island. And we have this wonderful scene, this evocative scene where they're begging for mercy on the shore as the Hispaniola sails away. And when they finally realize that they're going to be left, their beggings turn to angry, furious uh, jeers and taunts, and they start firing at the ship. And mm-hmm. they're angry because... They're being left to die. Mm-hmm. Very good. Okay, good. So all of those things could be put in the denouement section of the plot chart. Jim's group loading the ship, the marooning of the five remaining pirates. And the Hispaniola sails for home. Hispaniola sailing for home. Good. What about a conclusion? Hang on a second. I can't say Hispaniola, much less type it. Sails for home. Is there a conclusion to this story? And by the way, the conclusion is where the author emphasizes his themes for one last time. What is the conclusion of the story? Uh, Let's see here. Jacob. Go ahead, Jacob. Well, I think that it's very surprising when Silver runs away again, switches sides, and he saved himself. And he also stole some money as well, so. <laughs> yep, Silver saves Once himself. Pirate, always a pirate. That's right, very good. Do we also find out in the conclusion what happens to the other characters? Yeah, they go back home and live happy, happily ever after. Yep, depending on, their, depending on their ability, right? I think it's funny that Ben Gunn, though he gets rich from yeah. the treasure hall, spends it all in a matter of weeks and ends up begging again, isn't that right? Yeah. Why don't we say, why don't we summarize the conclusion this way? Uh, each character goes on to a life uh, why don't we say goes on to a happy life as he can. <laughs> as happy a life as he can. Whatever, Mr. <laughs> to as happy a life as he is fit for. Oh, I like that. Most significantly, Jim is financially settled and no longer has any wish for adventure because he's seen it and he know what it, knows what it means. Yeah, I think that's the most important thing. Jim has no further wish for adventure because he's seen it. And I, I, he does say something about oxen and wain ropes couldn't get me out to Treasure Island again. Mm-hmm. Now, how is that, Mrs. A, an emphasizing of the themes of this story? Well, think about it. If If this is largely Jim's coming of age story, his going from innocence to experience, that final parting word from him tells us that he's gained all the experience that he needs and he's no longer at risk of being deceived 
by the allure of piracy, right? Right. Yeah, that's right. By the deceit of of wicked men. He has he has managed to come through that yeah. period of his life when he couldn't tell. Yeah, he's found his moorings. Mm-hmm. And so the, the the this conflict will Jim grow to maturity and gain experience? We find has in fact happened in this story. By the way, guys, Wayne ropes I I uh, is a word that Stevenson uses in the last chapter. I'm assuming they're the ropes with which you restrain oxen or with which they pull heavy loads. I don't actually know the answer. So sorry about that. What are the main themes of this story? We've been talking about them already, haven't we? Even when as far back as when we talked about setting and characters, we've been talking about the main ideas of this story. What kinds of things have we said? Charlotte, if you could summarize the main idea of this story in a word or two, what would it be? Charlotte, are you there? Oh, yeah. Um, so I think the theme of what or one of the themes of the story was greed because they were all Jim Hawk, he was the one that was kind of like he was just kind of out for adventure, I think not as much as the treasure. Uh, but I think like Silver and his crew, they were really out for the treasure. So if they didn't want it, like, well, they wanted it so bad that they like killed people for it and they did this whole adventure for it. So I think greed might be one of the themes. Okay, because of, of the, the pirate sort of is a personification of bloodthirsty murder <laughs> and greed. What about the conflicts that we've been interested in charting? Those are always a really good gauge of what the author is trying to to say thematically. Really, the theme, which is there in the center of our story chart, um, re- is reflected by the nature of the conflict and the way that it's resolved. So we looked at two conflicts, who will win the treasure, right? The quest for the treasure hunt and this issue of whether or not Jim was going to become a good man right. or go over to the dark side, right? Um how does the climactic moment that we've chosen resolve that conflict? And what does the nature of that resolution tell us about the theme? For example, one of the things that we talked about is um, the, how things are different than what they seem. You, you said appearances versus reality. Think about that climactic moment. What do the pirates expect they're going to find when they get to that, empty, to that place where the treasure is? They expect, because of the treasure map, that they're going to find a pile of gold. And that's what it appears that they're going to find. And in reality, an empty hole. Mm. And that, it's, that, it's about deception. It's about deception. And it's about that theme of things are not always what mm-hmm. they seem. Deceptive appearances versus realities. Yes. And then also that other climactic moment, Mrs. A, that you emphasize, that moment when Jim refuses to leave the stockade, who he keeps his word. Which we could call his coming of age. Yes. This is a coming of age story too. Or that scene when we, well, that I keep coming back to where he witnesses the murder of the honest pirate at the hands of Long John Silver. Yeah. Um, That basically suggests a loss of innocence, right? Which is a part of coming of age. Yeah, I think loss of innocence is an aspect of that coming of age mm-hmm. theme because it always coming of age always involves losing your innocence in some way. And when we're talking about appearance versus reality, um, a subcategory of that would be the issue of deceptive appearances, right? And also the issue of greed because the appearance 
of the pirates was that they were good guys, but the reality was they were greedy, evil guys. <laughs> good vocabulary. <laughs> there, Mrs. Mr. A. It might be time to wrap her up. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Good. So if we've got two main conflicts and we've got two main themes, but I want to emphasize that when you're thinking about a story like this, the author is, uh, can be talking about lots of different themes at the same time. It's just nice sometimes to be able to represent them on a story chart so you can think clearly about the book that you've read. And I also want to suggest that thinking about a story this way, reading it carefully and thinking about how it's put together and what the various parts of the story do for your understanding of a theme is a great way to enjoy the books you read more deeply. I'll bet in the long run, if you can train yourself to think this way about the books you read, you will have more fun reading than you ever have before. Um, somebody says, I wonder, I was wondering if the theme could be death. Well, I think that uh, death is certainly an aspect of this story, but if you look at the way the, the, the story chart is plotted and you look at the conflicts that are resolved, I don't think death is one of the main preoccupations of the author. No, in fact, we only see just the one guy die, don't we? Just the honest guy die. And, well, and there's a couple guys that, that die in the gunfight yeah, at the end. Yeah, that's true. There's that gunfight. Yeah. But it's not a preoccupation in the no. story. But what is a preoccupation in the story <laughs> is this idea that things are not always what they seem. It's, it's hard to know whether to trust people. And this idea of Jim coming of age and mm-hmm. learning how to make good decisions. Those seem to be the things that the, that the author is really preoccupied with talking about. And that's what an author's theme is. And that, in the end, is why we should read a story. So that we can understand the author and his themes. So we can think about the thoughts that the author's wanting us to think about. For example, this coming of age, growing up to become a man. It begs the question, what does Stevenson think a good man is? Right? So according to this story, a good man is somebody that looks a lot more like Dr. Livesey and Squire Trelawney than Long John Silver. Or even someone whose appearance is the same as his reality. Yes. Someone who honest is man. who he says he is, is a good man. Yes. Yeah. That's an interesting thought to keep in mind, isn't it? It is. Someone who keeps his word. Someone who keeps his word. In that pivotal moment that we read in which Jim tells, uh, tells the doctor, no, I'm not going to bolt because I gave him my word. Yeah. And a good man lives by his word. Right? Right. So we get to see Stevenson basically telling us the reason that he wrote this story. I want to talk about what a good man is. I want to demonstrate what a good man is. That's awesome. Let's take one more comment and then we will let you all go. Jacob, your hand is up. Go ahead, Jacob. I thought it was kind of interesting that that this is a story that lots of people can identify with when they're young. Well, why do you say that? I think you're right. Why do you say it? Because it's from his perspective and to see that experience gives knowledge in some ways because he experienced a lot. And it also expresses honesty too. Yeah, good. There's a lot of things you can learn from Jim's adventure about uh, what it means to grow up and, uh, you know, what what's at stake in the growing up process. I think it's really appropriate for young readers who are in the middle of that process themselves, even if they're not about to go on South Sea treasure adventures, the lessons that Jim learns and the ideas he wrestles with are applicable to your lives as well. And his putting it in the first person, basically writing it, um, what, what my son used to call an I book, right? It's in the first person, Jim telling the story, really does help you identify with his adventure. Yeah, for sure. 
Uh, Charlotte, in answer to your question, this is an old book. It was written in 1883. It actually um, appeared in a kids' magazine in 1881 and 1882, and then was finally finally published in 1883. So it's more than a hundred years old. But I think, as you as you can tell, I'm sure, still relevant and still enjoyable today. Well, you guys, thank you so much for coming. This has been really, really fun. I hope that you've enjoyed reading Treasure Island, and I hope that you've enjoyed our discussion, and I hope that you will consider joining us in the fall for a whole year of good discussions like this. We have classes for junior high kids and high school kids on a variety of great works of Western literature. You can find complete book lists uh, for the upcoming classes on our website at centerforlit.com. And we have, uh, like I said, classes for junior high kids. And then we also have an American lit class, a world lit class, a British lit class, and a class on understanding poetry that are all geared toward high school students. Classes begin right around the 1st of September, and then they meet monthly throughout the year up until the end of the 2016-2017 school year. So if you're interested in joining one of those classes, we still have room and would love to welcome you. Check it out on the website at centerforlit.com. And in the meantime, I hope you read a couple more books this summer and think about them according to these ideas that we've given you today. Any final comments, Mrs. A? No, I think that about sums it up. Thanks so much for joining us today. This was a lot of fun. Until we meet again, my friends, happy Happy reading. reading.